The fierce one, as I call him, seems a very tough fellow. I hope I never have to fight him. From the little I know, he seems to be honest and very direct. I like the quiet one immensely. He's been patient and inquisitive. He seems eager to communicate. I would conclude that he is a man of some weight among his people. During the Civil War, a white soldier becomes part of a Sioux tribe. Join us as we talk about a very impressive helmet, a nice way to drag someone, and what video gamers have in common with knitters. Then we find out if Dances with Wolves stands the test of time. Time. James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? James says gladiator with a glut Alan says as a father blah blah It's the test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Hello everyone, welcome to the Test of Time. I'm James Brief. Joining me as always is my buddy, my podcast partner, director of this show, Alan Noah. Ooh, I like it when you call me the director. And the associate producer and the best boy, and you are the best boy. Aw, thank you. That is so nice. How are you doing today, James? I'm good. Do you know what a best boy is on a movie, actually? Lighting? Yeah, it is, yeah. I think they work for the key grip. Or the key grip works for the best boy? I forget. I don't know, but you're a good boy too, Al. Why, thank you. Actually, I just downgraded you because I said you were the best boy. Now I said you're a good boy. Oh, yeah. I don't know what I did (laughs) in those five seconds to get myself downgraded. But today we're going to be talking about Dances with Wolves. And the reason we're talking about it is because this November we're doing listener requests. Uh, We did that last November. and That was fun. And this movie was requested by Matthew Salinas on Facebook. He asked us to do Dances with Wolves. So, Matthew, thank you for talking to us at Test of Time Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Like I always ask, you asked us to do this movie, and we are doing this movie for you. Yeah, for you, Matthew. And do you know who didn't request this film, Al? Uh, my sister? That's correct. Fans of the podcast, uh, you might recall that uh, our sister Samantha, Samantha Noah, she's done a number of podcasts with us, most recently Little Monsters. But before that, we had done uh, a little film, a little gangster film called Goodfellas. Right. I remember that. That was a good time. Also released, like Dances with Wolves, in 1990, and also, like Dances with Wolves, nominated for Best Picture, but unlike Dances with Wolves, did not win Best Picture. Wait, that was like a double negative. So to my sister's chagrin, Goodfellas didn't win and Dances with Wolves did win. Right. And the 63rd uh, Academy Awards were very interesting, these Best Picture nominees, because you've got absolute classics, like Goodfellas. I mean, that is no question it's a classic. You've got this movie, Awakenings. I don't know if you ever heard of it. It's yeah. a it's a critically acclaimed film. It's one of those films that you know gets nominated for Best Picture. You had Ghost, a film we're definitely reviewing, and then you had a film that, while at the time it may have been critically acclaimed, it's definitely in the zeitgeist, not known as a Best Picture nominee. This is the third part of a trilogy, and the first two parts of the trilogy were both nominated for and then received Best Picture, uh, one Best Picture. Do you know what this is? 
Godfather? Yeah, The Godfather Part 3, which is actually the opposite of of another trilogy. Do you know which trilogy I'm talking about? Lord of the Rings. Right. The first two Lord of the Rings were nominated for Best Picture, and it was the third one that won it. You know, Godfather Part 3, uh, have you ever seen it, Al? I have. I have seen all three Godfather movies. If and when we do those movies on the podcast, which we should, I would be willing to do one, two, and three. I know everyone hates the third one, but I'd watch it and just, you know, if it's terrible, we can make fun of it, whatever. But um, it's part of the trilogy. I'd watch it. I've only seen the whole trilogy once, and with my friends once, we rented it. And over, like, a few days, we watched the whole trilogy. And I remember, since I'd never seen it before, and I watched the entire, like, what is it, eight hours in a row, I remember thinking, it was okay, like, it was just part three. But, you know, I guess I didn't have 20 years to wait for that. So it is a little different for people. Right, 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 right. And the movie's about John Dunbar, a white Civil War soldier who requests to be stationed at a remote outpost on the frontier. At first, John enjoys the isolation until he realizes that he shares his new home with a local Sioux tribe. At first, the Sioux are wary of John, and he's unsure about them, but they slowly learn to trust each other. John falls for a white woman who's living with the Sioux, stands with a fist, and he's welcomed into the tribe. John helps the Sioux hunt buffalo, fight against another tribe, and defends them from invading white soldiers. As part of his journey, the man known as John Dunbar is reborn as Dances with Wolves. And I'm not going to ask you if this was a big hit because I remember that this was a huge hit. It was in theaters for a very long time. People loved it. It won Best Picture, although Best Picture winners aren't always beloved by audiences. But I remember that this was a huge, huge hit. Well, it's really interesting. This is one of these fascinating box office uh, returns. This film was made for a $22 million budget. Makes sense. I mean, it's beautifully shot, but you didn't have to build any sets. I mean, uh, it's just gorgeous landscape. And other than Kevin Costner, you don't have any major stars in the film. The film was made for $22 million, and it wound up making $184 million domestically, $424 million worldwide. And this is after opening November 9th, 1990. But amazingly, Al, it never made it to number one in the United States. Really? Yes. And that's actually because there was a film in 1990 that we've reviewed that was number one for 12 weeks in a row, and Dancing with Wolves did not stand the chance against this film. I'll give you a, a subtle hint. An iconic part of this film involves aftershave. Oh, Home Alone. Yes, Home Alone. So Home Alone beat Dances with Wolves and kicked its ass, honestly. I mean, I definitely didn't see Dances with Wolves in the theater, and I definitely did see Home Alone in the theater multiple times. I definitely saw Home Alone in the theater with my mom the night before we were going to fly to Florida to see Grandma. So I remember joking with her about how fun it would be if she left me at home. And she didn't think that was funny. I mean, I'm sure she thought that her trip would be more fun too. Oh, just kidding. I'm sure your mom loves you very much. She wants to visit Grandma without the kids? No, no, just without you. Oh, well, okay. Well, that's that's very cruel. But... <laughs> I'm sorry. I know your mom loves you very much. But the movie itself starts with John, who is lying on a 
gurney in some civil war battle and the doctors are talking about how they're going to have to amputate his foot and he does not want to have his foot amputated so he decides to kill himself by riding in front of the confederate soldiers he's a union soldier and I remember this from when I did watch this movie, not in the theater, but I believe in like social studies or it was at school for something. And he rides in front of these other soldiers with his arms out, begging them to hit him. And they all miss, I guess, because, you know, those old timey guns were hard to shoot and they weren't expecting him to like ride right in front of their line. But they keep missing him. He goes back for like a second pass. They miss him again. And then all the Union soldiers are able to fire on the Confederate soldiers and they win the battle. Yay! Now he's a hero. And then the movie explains what happened afterwards with a voiceover. And I immediately groan because the voiceover tells you that he was considered a hero and they didn't amputate his foot. They allowed him to choose any post he wanted to go to and they let him keep the horse that he rode. And none of that needs to be said in voiceover. This all could have been explained in the next scene. You know, when he's talking to the general at the next fort, he says, so I understand you're a war hero and, and they let you pick wherever you wanted to go and you chose here. You don't need the voiceover, and that trend does continue. There is a lot of unnecessary voiceover in this movie. Well, uh, you know, listeners of the podcast know that Alan hates uh, voiceovers. That being said, this film at least has justification for the voiceover because we later learn that he's not just speaking to the camera. He's not narrating this film. These are his diary entries or his journal entries. And I see what you're saying here that probably we could have figured out what he was saying instead of uh, him saying it over narration, although I think it's fine. But later on, I think it is important for the voiceover to be told later and it would have been weird if they suddenly started doing voiceover a quarter of the way in the film. I think it was okay to establish that here. So again, you hate voiceovers. I don't, so it was okay with me. I mean, I hate unnecessary voiceover. I agree with what you're saying. It would have just been weird if they started it later. I think this movie could have been made without it, but I understand later it has more of a role than it does at this point. I don't think you can make this film without voiceover or effectively the same way because there's a lot of times where John Dunbar character, Kevin Costner's character, is alone in complete isolation. And a movie like Castaway with Tom Hanks has to invent a, let's make him a, talk to a volleyball so he can speak to somebody. Otherwise, it's going to be voiceover the whole time in his head. You know, I think they have to create something because there is isolation in this film. So I think it gives something for, for him to talk to unless he's going to talk to the horse or something. You know, it's interesting that you bring up Castaway because I was thinking in my head that this movie was kind of like Forrest Gump. And that movie had, in my opinion, unnecessary voiceover like Dances with Wolves. And I think part of what bothers me with these movies is that Tom Hanks and Kevin Costner are really good actors. And therefore, they can express a lot of emotion without the voiceover, without talking to someone I think it's possible. Is it more challenging? Yes. Does it require the audience member to be paying more attention? Yes. But I think if you have a really great actor like Tom Hanks, like Kevin Costner, it can be done. Maybe if you have a brilliant actor like Kevin Costner, but what if you have a moron director? 
Like Kevin Costner? Ah, very good, Al. This film is uh, both starring and directed by Kevin Costner. This was the first movie he directed, and he won an Oscar for it. So, you know, impressive to win an Oscar, but even more impressive to win an Oscar for directing your first time directing. Absolutely, yeah. So Dunbar goes to this fort, and he's assigned to go to this other fort on the frontier, because that's where he wants to go, to the frontier. He wants to see it before it's gone. And the commander is clearly insane. At one point, he says, I have pissed in my pants, and no one can do anything about it. And Dunbar's like, okay? You know, like, what do you say to that? And after Dunbar goes off and, and rides to the frontier, this guy kills himself. Which is significant because he hastily wrote his transfer orders on like a piece of paper and folds it like 20 times. It's very weird. He folds it down to like the size of a quarter. It's very weird. He says that that's his seal. He's like, my seal will protect you when people know that it is an official seal for me, which maybe like if there was some embossed thing that he would put on the paper, that could be a thing. But it's not a seal. It's just him folding it like over and over and over again. Right. And this guy's insane. This is one of the only people that knows that John Dunbar is going to this frontier. And as you said, he kills himself. So the only other person that knows that this soldier has been even assigned there, it's not like this guy made a carbon copy and sent it to someone else before he killed himself, Right? is this uh, vagabond. He's a, a hobo, if you will. Um, is he? I thought he was part of the army. Uh, I don't know, but he's he's definitely like a toothless guy, like a yee-haw prospector. Actually, do you know this actor? His name is Robert Pastorelli. Did you recognize him from anywhere? No. I thought at first that this was Oliver Platt, but it's not. It's Robert Pastorelli. I don't know if you remember, but there was this show in the 90s, Murphy Brown. Of he, course I know Murphy Brown, yeah. He was uh, Edwin or Eldon. Eldon. Yeah, Eldon. He was that guy. So he's just a random guy who owns a carriage, and he takes John Dunbar there to this outpost. And on his way back, this hobo guy is killed by some uh, Pawnee Native Americans. And because this guy is killed and because the crazy commander was killed, there is nobody that knows that this guy's out here. And he even mentions in his diaries, like, it's been a couple months and there's not a single sign of any relief. So I've decided to ration my uh, resources here just in case. Right. And he's doing like the responsible soldier thing to do of protecting the fort and going on his rounds to inspect the fort and cleaning up the fort. And he kind of maybe doesn't have to because who's checking up on him? He doesn't have a boss, you know, like micromanaging him or supervising him in any way, shape or form, but he's doing the right thing. And then he encounters these Native Americans and he's never seen one before. And uh, Timmins is the name of the, the guy who took him out there. He was saying that all Indians are beggars and thieves and he doesn't know what to make of these people they try to take his horse and one of the guys like kind of gets in his face and starts yelling at him and he doesn't speak the language and Dunbar thinks like all right either I'm just a target for these people or I can go talk to them and he decides to go and try to communicate with them and while he's riding to them he sees this woman by a tree and this woman is a character named stands with a fist uh, she's played by mary mcdonnell who we just recently saw in donnie darko she was the mom in that movie do you know from anything else though 
Uh, no, what else was she in? Um, she was in the Battlestar Galactica remake. Fantastic series. And, uh, and she was the main character in there. So she's a fantastic actress. Oh, okay. I, I didn't know that. But when I saw this character, at first I thought that this was what we would call today Hollywood whitewashing. That this woman was supposed to be a Native American and they just cast a Caucasian woman in the role. But... It's not whitewashing. This character is Caucasian, and we find out later that she was taken by Native Americans when she was a young girl, and she has lived with them for many, many years, but she does speak some English from what she remembers when she was a kid, and that comes into play later. So John sees this woman. She's passed out. She's covered in blood. She looks, like, horribly injured, but she's not. And we later realize that it was someone else's blood that she was covered in. Do we realize that? I didn't realize that. I was not totally sure what she was doing covered in blood. We find out later that her husband died. I wasn't clear if she was standing over her husband who had been killed or that she like cut herself because she was in mourning because she was sad about her husband. I'm not really sure what that blood was. I thought they made some quick passing reference to, that's how you found her that day, and something like that. Yeah, but they don't explain what that meant. They don't say, when you found her, her husband had been killed three minutes ago. True. You know, it wasn't really clear what it was. You're right, it's not clear, but um, he basically puts her on his horse and he brings her back to what he assumes is her people, the, the Sioux. And when they they see her, they don't attack him because I think they're, they're a little confused about what this white man's doing here. And there's this very aggressive Native American guy. We later learn that he is uh, wind in his hair and he just runs right over. He screams at a language that we obviously can't understand and he grabs... Uh, this woman and grabs her by her wrist and drags her like 50 feet back to the tribe. I thought maybe you could at least, at least grab both of her arms or, or like try to like, it looked like she's got to dislocate her arm. Both arms is a nicer way to drag somebody, I guess. Yeah. By holding both her arms, you lift up her head. Like this one, he was like dragging her head was on the ground. It looked like it looked horrible. Yeah. And she's already bleeding and hurt. But Dunbar doesn't give up. He tries again with the Sioux. They go to him. He goes to them. The Sioux give him the peace pipe as an offering. He shares his coffee with them. And I don't drink coffee at all. I never developed a taste for it. And and you don't drink it either, right? I sometimes drink coffee, but I'm not a daily drinker, certainly. Okay. Well, from what I understand, and I could be wrong because I don't drink this stuff, but isn't it kind of an acquired taste? Um, also, he does throw a lot of sugar in their coffee. It doesn't seem like they've ever tried sugar before. I just feel like nobody likes coffee the first time they drink it. You know, like you're going to need to give them a lot of coffee and maybe eventually they will start to like it. It kind of made me think of the Futurama episode where in the future there's only like a couple of anchovies left and Fry gives them to his friends at the very end of the episode and they eat it and they're all like, oh, this is disgusting. And he's like, yeah, well, it grows on you. But then they can't ever eat it again because there are no more. It's like, this is just a weird thing to offer them, coffee. I thought, but again, I'm not a coffee person, so... Whatever. Then again, they offer John the peace pipe, and he seems to take to that very quickly. This is true. Is, is it supposed to be weed or is it tobacco or some kind of mix? I assumed it was tobacco. 
Okay, I have no idea. I don't know. I could be wrong about that. But the thing that really brings John and the suit together is Tatanka, the buffalo. And there was a passing reference earlier that you don't know when you'll see the buffalo because Dunbar is asking Timmins, like, when am I going to see the buffalo? I want to see the buffalo. And it's like, eh, you can't really predict it. You see him when you see him. And the Sioux depend on the buffalo. They need the buffalo for food. And they're hungry because they haven't seen the buffalo in so long. And then Dunbar sees them and he runs back to the Sioux and tells them, Tatanka, Tatanka, because that's the first word that they learned from each other. And they go after the buffalo. And at first, all they see are like a couple of dozen dead ones that have been killed by people who don't really care about these animals. It's clear that it's the white man who have just killed them basically for sport or, or their hides too, right? Oh, yeah. It's a horrible scene. I, I mean, it's, it's a beautiful scene, but it's just, it's horrible. And there's a famous picture. If you Google Buffalo Bones picture, it's an enormous hill, like like five stories tall. And it's just buffalo skulls. And it is pathetic that this exists. And this is probably a fraction of what was killed in this year. You see this stampede. These stampedes don't exist anymore on Earth. And not only did the uh, frontier people kill the buffalo, yeah, some of them killed them for the for the hides, and, and that that's terrible. But some of them were doing it for an even more sinister reason, and they were killing it specifically. This is what the Native Americans lived on. There was some expression that was very popular that was, uh, yes, they used an outdated term. Apparently, this is what people used to say, that every buffalo you kill is a hundred Indians that you starve. It used to be advertised uh, when there used to be the Transcontinental Railroad, which was, of course, the, the railroad that would go to the West Coast. They would tell people that there's buffalo, and they would take their guns on the trains and just shoot them. I even wow. think they didn't even get the hide. You know, it was just dead uh, buffalo. You see that, like, the Sioux are really excited when they're on the trail for the buffalo, and then they come over this ridge, and they see the, the carcasses, and they're crestfallen, and you see how sad they are which I realize is unrelated, but you don't need voiceover to know the Sioux were sad when they saw the dead carcasses. You get it. You see their faces. You understand. But then they do find the rest of the herd, and it's a really amazing-looking scene when they encounter all these buffalo. And earlier, when Dunbar first sees the buffalo— He's kind of like looking through a telescope and it's really foggy and he only sees like one or two at a time. And I was like, oh, I guess the movie didn't have enough budget to make like a whole big shot of a huge herd. But then in this scene, you see the whole herd and it is breathtaking. They did an amazing job with just the buffalo running on the prairie. And then when they start hunting the buffalo, they're killing the animals, but they're doing it for food and for sustenance. And you understand that it's important. And this entire sequence is breathtaking. It's a beautifully shot sequence. And I think it might be with Timmins or, or there's one shot where they come across an area where a buffalo stampede had previously gone through. It looks like a quarter mile wide of complete completely destroyed land. You know, you just get the the sheer power of this stampede. And this is one of those films that they made a big deal about how no animals were harmed in this and that they used 
computers and also uh, yeah and animatronics and things and like you said it's done so well I, I think probably it's a lot of animatronics and it's one of those things where you can allow blurry images because the whole thing's a blur even if you film it in HD it's going to be a blur right so they kind of get away with it and the Native Americans are all using uh, spears and arrows and hatchets and John Dunbar is of course he's using uh, the white tool which is a rifle right and he's able to take out the buffalo you know not necessarily better than any of the other people however there's a part where a younger uh, I guess what she's supposed to be like 14, 15 or something. She's like a teenager or something. Yeah. This young woman, Native American, she's watching the guys uh, hunt the buffalo and a rogue buffalo that it looked like it was injured. It just starts stampeding towards her and the other Sue, they're cut off from her. So they scream, they get John's attention and they're telling her like, you got to save her. Look, look. He takes three shots. He misses the first two and then he puts on his sight. It's really cool. He, he gets the, the buffalo and you know, it's one of those just in time. Great shot. And the actress, I love this character character this buffalo is racing at her at full speed she does not move it's so cool and when john kills the buffalo and it just slides up to her it misses her by inches right and as like a prize for this amazing kill and saving this young member of their tribe they cut out the heart of the buffalo and take a bite out of it and then indicate that john should do the same thing and you know, look, I'm a carnivore, I eat meat, but just eating a heart right out of the animal, I mean, yikes, that just seems unsanitary and gross. I don't think he got a bacterial infection, but what I love in this scene, and reminds me actually of, of Mr. Miyagi in The Karate Kid, because when Wind in His Hair hands John Dunbar the heart, he takes a little bite of it, and Wind in His Hair just says, Ugh. And then he takes a much bigger bite and reminds me of when uh, I think Daniel's son, I think he bows incorrectly and just goes, Ugh! and then he's like, oh, okay, okay. And, he, and Daniel's son knows what to do too. I love a grunt is a real good international, like stop fucking up and get with the program, man. It's a good grunt. Yeah. Um, I like that he correctly realizes like, yeah, they're liking me, but I need to leave because I don't want to overstay my welcome. And he goes back to his fort and it's a really cool scene because after this Tatanka scene and then he gets back to his fort and credit to the editor, it is silent. And you really can tell how lonely he is, how different it is now that he's not with his friends. He misses them and he's emulating them and he decides to make a fire and he dances around the fire. So you're saying you understood that he was lonely and that he missed his friends because of his actions, or did you understand it because the voiceover specifically told you all of that? Well, the voiceover did say certain things like, I left without wanting to overstay my welcome. Those things, yes. And fine, Al, there was a sentence or two that maybe we could have figured out. Yeah, you didn't need that stuff. <laughs> Kevin Costner's a good actor and is doing a good job directing. You understand these things based on what you're seeing. That is good visual storytelling. That's all I'm saying. 
And, you know, we haven't mentioned it yet, but uh, ever since John had arrived at the fort, there was this wolf that had started coming to the fort. It was actually the first uh, first any creature other than his horse that John had seen. And the wolf was kind of uh, shy at first, but slowly over the course of the film, the wolf gets a little friendlier, trusts John a little more. It's now like a, a human-dog relationship. Yeah, yeah. And then at one point, John is going to the Sioux and the wolf whose name is Two Socks. He names him Two Socks because he's got like some white coloring on his feet. He's following him and then Dunbar says, no, get out of here, shoo, shoo. And he's kind of like trying to chase him away and the Sioux see this and it looks like he is dancing with the wolf. So then they name him Dances with Wolves. But he only ever dances with one wolf. It's possible this is a translation thing. Like, if it was like Dances with Moose, you wouldn't know. Maybe in Sioux, Wolf and Wolves are the same word. Maybe, but it is confusing because the female character is stands with a fist. So, you know, they can do a name where there's a, a singular in there and it works. Yeah, but stands with fists? That's weird. That makes more sense. I mean, you have two fists. If Dunbar was dancing with many wolves, then sure, he dances with wolves. But he's just a guy who dances with one wolf. Also, while we're talking about the Native American names, there's a kid who's named Smiles a lot. That one is just bad. I feel like that's just lazy. We learn the etymology of some of the names, and it seems like these kids get the name when they're children or teenagers, and it seems like, what do they call in the first few years? And smiles a lot seems to be like, maybe what you call a cute baby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know about what they are called before they get their like official name, but a lot of them have to do with nature. You know, like there's Kicking Bird and Wind in His Hair and Chief Ten Bears, and then smiles a lot is like... I don't know. That just seems like a lazy character that you'd write for like a kid's Knights of the Round Table story. Oh, there Sir smiles a lot. Unless this is her temporary kid's name. And then maybe she'll be like young warrior huntress when she gets a little older. I hope it's something cooler than smiles a lot. Although when she gets older, she wouldn't be young warrior uh, huntress. No, she wouldn't be. You're bad at this. (laughs) Unless she's like Lil Wayne, who really never graduated to being senior Wayne. Yeah, but no one should aspire to be Lil Wayne. But then there's another way that Dunbar, or now Dances with Wolves, bonds with the Sioux, and that is when the Pawnee attack. And the Pawnee are basically the bad Native Americans in this movie. And I was reading something that said that's actually probably not historically accurate, that the Sioux were probably more aggressive to the Pawnee in real life, and in this movie it's kind of inverted, But before the Pawnee attack the village, they kill a bunch of dogs that are like out in the water. They're playing. They're so cute. And then the Pawnee come and kill them. And so now you know that the Pawnee are evil. Well, also they scalped Timmons alive. Right. It's also implied that they are the Native Americans who killed Stands with the Fist's uh, parents and orphaned her. And then she met the Sioux. They don't really explicitly say that. I just inferred that because if the Sioux murdered her parents and then kidnapped her, why would she love them and live with them? I assume that it was the Pawnee that did that, that that was what the movie was trying to say. 
I give the film credit that it didn't simplify the Native Americans to being like all just one with nature and all they know how to do is hunt and build beautiful teepees and smoke peace pipes. No, they show that some of them are bad guys. Like, that's fine. I thought that that was kind of cool that, uh, you know, the the white people mostly are bad guys. But even the Native American population, they have their own little thing going on. Like, it's not all white people. There are problems. Like, before 1492, there were intertribe wars. And I kind of forgot about the Pawnee subplot of this film and I, I think it's interesting that they do it even if it's inaccurate like that definitely should be more accurate but uh, I just think it's interesting they didn't go the simplified route I get what you're saying but at the very end of the movie they make it seem like it's all the white people's fault and you know the white men are attacking and then the movie ends with text on screen that talks about how the white men wiped out the Sioux but, like, the white men are not the villain in this movie for most of the movie. Like, you just said the pointy subplot. That part of the story takes up a lot more minutes than them fighting the white men. So it is a little bit weird that, like, they sort of at the very end are like, oh, yeah, the white guys are the bad guys. But for most of the movie, it's just this other tribe, and they're the bad guys. I kind of feel like that's a cop-out. Like, it would have been more honest to say these Native Americans were facing extinction from the white men, and that was their main number one problem, and in the movie it's sort of like an afterthought. But what if that's not the point? These people have their own lives, and they have their own beefs with each other. It's quite possible it has nothing to do with the white people, although the white people encroaching on their land probably doesn't help things in killing all their buffalo. Sure, I'm just saying, like, the way that the movie ends, it seems like that's what the movie is saying. That the problem for the Sioux is the white man, and that's the point with a capital P of the movie, when that's not really what the movie was showing us for the first two and a half hours or whatever it is. That is a good point. Yes, yes. The problem that's going to take place after this film that we all know as the, as the movie viewers, we know how this ends ultimately for yes. the uh, for the Sioux and the Pawnee uh, exactly. and the Confederates and the Union. We know everything ends. But you're right. It is an interesting uh, place that the Pawnee hold in this film. But in the battle, John is basically the hero. He saves the Sioux Basically, by going and getting his guns from the fort, he buried them earlier in the movie. He digs them up. He brings them over to the Sioux, hands the Sioux all the guns. And the Sioux are very good at shooting these guns and are able to kill a lot of Pawnee, even though they've presumably never held a gun before. You know, that's interesting. Um, Fifteen years ago, I helped with a study that laparoscopic surgeons, and these are the surgeons that use the little cameras inside the body that they basically do surgery with little chopsticks through a small hole in your body. Mm-hmm. Laparoscopic surgeons were found to be better surgeons and make fewer errors if they were video game players. But it wasn't just video game players that we found. Knitters, remote control airplane hobbyists, like all these little things that have very fine hand hand coordination. They were all very good at picking up this laparoscopic suturing skills. And mm-hmm. maybe in like an hour, they're not going to pick up guns. But these people who are 
expert marksmen with arrows, I would imagine they know how to how to hold a, a weapon. I don't know if they would be able to do it right away, and it's possible that there might have been more time. You know, this is the kind of film that maybe they had a week to practice. Who knows? No, 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 no. It is very clear that this is all happening in one night because Dances with Wolves is like, I'll go back to my fort and get the guns. And they're like, there isn't time. The Pawnee will be here any minute. You're right. Maybe I'm also just conditioned to every movie ever where there has to be like a training montage of like, we don't know how to fight. Oh, but now I will teach you. And then we see them slowly get better. Here, they're just like, they're great at guns. Whatever. When they kill like the Pawnee leader, the Sioux encircle him. And then like they all fire at once. I know what you're going to say. And I was thinking the same thing. How does three o'clock not kill nine o'clock and 12 o'clock not kill six o'clock? Exactly. Yeah. I mentioned that in the Escape from L.A. episode. Whatever. It's fine. Also, in all of this other stuff that's happening, Dances with Wolves is falling in love with Stands with a Fist. She's mourning her husband, but then she's released from her mourning by the chief and she's allowed to remarry I did think that the pacing of their love story was a little off. They have sex for the first time by the lake. And then literally in the very next scene, it's them like having sex again, but in a teepee. And then they're in love. It's like, well, are they in love or did they just have sex twice? Is she still mourning her husband? Because she talks about that a lot. And that makes sense. But then that seems to just be like a switch that turns off of like, oh, not mourning my husband anymore. At one point, Dances with Wolves says to her, why aren't you married? Which is like just a bad thing to say to someone that you presumably like. Don't say that. Also, why aren't you married? Yeah, not a good question to ask, generally. Uh, And shortly after this, they wind up getting married. And I do love the scene where uh, they all get married and then everyone's like, All right, go to the tent. And it's not like they're riding off to the honeymoon suite. The honeymoon suite is right there. And this is not a thing that's only for Native Americans. A lot of Jewish weddings, actually the husband and wife, right after the ceremony, they'll be with each other for a little while before they join the party. Usually in modern times, it's not meant for procreating the marriage, but I believe it still is done in like Orthodox weddings sometimes. So I guess everyone knows what the wedding's for. So, you know, go at it. Yes, I've heard about that before in other cultures and it's a thing. Yeah. There's a part where they're talking with the tribesmen at night and it's by the campfire. You know, they're always talking about the white man's coming, the white man's coming. And there's this old guy that says, eh, the white guys aren't a problem, even though John Dunbar knows and Kicking Bird knows the white people are coming and it's you know, it's going to be bad. But there's this great scene when uh, the old chief, he takes out the conquistador's helmet And this thing looks so cool. It's just a fantastic movie prop. I was just so impressed by this helmet. And the Conquistadors, if you don't remember, uh, they were the Spaniard. Brutal, brutal people that came in like the 16th century. And he says, eh, we beat the Spaniards. And then the Mexicans, we beat them too. Eh, the Texans, we beat them too. These white people, I guess Americans, yeah, we'll beat them too. They're not a problem. And that's when John is like, yeah, he really doesn't doesn't get it. That's a voiceover that I think works there because he's just in the middle of the fire and it's like, he, he just didn't see it. 
I disagree in that I think we, the audience, get it because we know what happens to the Native Americans. But I did think it was weird when one day he's just talking with the chief and is like, oh, yeah, the white men are coming. It's going to be really bad. We need to move. They're coming now. Like, why now? What does he know? What's changed? Literally nothing is the answer. He's just decided like now he's going to be honest and now they need to move the village. And it's very sudden. It's very out of the blue. It was very, very strange. Then he remembers that he has to go back to the fort to get his journal because where he's been keeping all of his written thoughts, well, that's a map right to them. Okay, fine. You're going to say, well, then that justifies the voiceover because the journal is a plot point. But also, it's really, really stupid that he just left it there. And how long has it been since he's been back to the fort? I did notice, though, that in this section of the movie, when he's not writing in his journal, there is less voiceover. I thought the movie was working just fine without it. But then when he goes back to the fort to get his journal... The soldiers are there. They see this man who's dressed as a Native American. So they immediately attack him. And then they find out that he's white, but he's dressed like a Native American. So one of the other soldiers says, what do I do? Do I salute him or shoot him? And, you know, they kind of don't know what to do. But then they decide, nah, he's a traitor. We'll just arrest him. Yeah, they're like, he's turned Injun. And the Sioux, who had been packing up to go to their winter camp, they realized Dancing with Wolves should be back by now. So they send a couple scouts, and the scouts realize he's been captured. And as the army is taking him back, the Sioux come, they ambush them, they kill everyone. Stands with a fist is reunited with her husband. But he realizes eh, there's now like six missing soldiers, including a major. He actually says, this is the excuse that they need to come after us. I thought that was an interesting line because that's what they're going to say. They killed one of our officers, kill every one of them, arrest every one of them. You know, these horrible march of tears and just horrible, horrible stuff that they've done. I think John's right that if he doesn't do something, the white people might come and just kill them all. I agree with everything you just said. But then Dances with Wolves says, so I need to leave you guys. I need to go off on my own and I need to find someone that I can talk to. Anyone who will listen. And that line drives me insane. Maybe I'm overanalyzing. Maybe I should have let this one sentence really get to me. But it really gets to me. Who's he going to talk to? What is he going to say? Everything he's just experienced points to these people are not to be reasoned with. It's not worth trying. If he goes and talks to them with stands with a fist, they're going to kill them. They're going to arrest them. They're going to send them away. No good is going to come from it. So I agree that he needs to leave the Sioux and he needs to say goodbye to them. But like the idea that he's going to go and try to talk to someone, that's just so out of character. It's so stupid. He has no reason to believe that. And the movie doesn't need that because the movie ends like four minutes later. Like we don't see him go and talk to somebody and find a general and maybe they strike an agreement. No, of course that's not going to happen. We know what happens. We know that the, the white men hunt the Native Americans. So... What he should say is, I've got to leave. We're going to go start a family somewhere. 
and that's it. Well, I think the word, I wouldn't say it's stupid. I would say it's naive. We have the ability to know that this is not going to work. I mean, 10 years earlier, this idea that we can really end slavery, like it can be done. You know, abolitionists were able to successfully end slavery. Yes, it caused a civil war. But I think this guy was like, look, maybe we can actually for the first time talk about maybe these Native American people. We can maybe work something out that we could both live here. And I want to talk to someone who can listen. I'll bet there were people. I'll bet there was some newspaper in Providence, Rhode Island that would have heard him and published a little op-ed that does nothing. And he probably spoke at a couple maybe universities and nothing happens. And then, yeah, maybe someone kills him. Who knows? But I think it was at least... uh, He tried something, but you're right. It's completely futile. I hear what you're saying. One, I still think it's a stupid way to end the movie. It's very anticlimactic. And also, if Dunbar, when he was in the Civil War, was a devoted abolitionist, and he fought in the Civil War because he believed in freeing all men, and we saw that he was determined to save the Sioux and all Native Americans from the white man Okay, then, yeah, maybe then I would believe it a little bit more when he says, I'm going to go talk to someone. But we don't see any of that. We don't hear any of that. We have no backstory about Dunbar. There's no reason for us to think that. And it's just like a a weird way to end the movie. And it's a shame because there's a great moment when they're saying their goodbyes, when Dances with Wolves and Stands with a Fist are leaving, and Wind in his hair goes up on like this ridge and yells, can you not see that I am your friend? Can you not see that I will always be your friend? And it's like heartbreaking and beautiful. And it's a callback to the first time they met when he yells in his face and says, can you see that I am not afraid of you? But now they're friends. I kind of hate that Dances with Wolves just like looks at him and then doesn't say anything and then just walks off. And I get it. It's like the solemn Hollywood goodbye thing to do to just walk away. But this poor guy is pouring his heart out, screaming how much he loves his friend. And Dances with Wolves is just like, thanks. Bye. Later. Whatevs. I thought that was kind of a jerk move. But then the movie ends with this text on screen that says, a couple years later, the white men kill the Sioux. Their life is gone. The end. And it's like pretty abrupt. Also, while this is happening and Dance with Wolves and Stands with the Fist leave, we see the white soldiers who are working with the Pawnee, apparently, to, like, track down the Sioux, which is interesting. Oh, didn't realize they were working together, but we had no information that they were working together. Like, that just kind of felt like, oh, that's a thing? Right? Did I miss something there? No, no, you didn't miss anything there. And it's not necessarily the Pawnee. I mean, there were always going to be people that will help the the enemy. Right, right. I just felt like that was a surprising development that could have been interesting, but we don't learn anything else because that is the end of the movie. But James, I am curious to get your thoughts on Dances with Wolves. And specifically, I want to know, do you think it stands the test of time? Well, first, I'm going to say this film is absolutely gorgeous. It's really, really well shot. It's beautiful. And 
Like, it's weird. When he takes the wagon out with Timmons, it looks like he passes by, like, the Grand Canyon. And uh, <laughs> and then he just, like, keeps going west for another couple hundred miles? Well, yeah, because there's a shot where he just takes his horse to look up and then rejoins Timmons. And, and I'm like, how did he get to the southwest? And then I don't think the Sioux are there. And this movie doesn't take place in, like, a desert. It's like the plains. So, what, do you go to the Grand Canyon, turn around, and go back to Kansas? I wasn't sure where this takes place, but... Uh, it was filmed in South Dakota. Well, yeah, because I thought it was like uh, Grand Teton, that kind of stuff. So that's the right area of the of the country. Um, a couple things uh, that you were talking about, the sad ending of the film, it's just kind of a weird thing. There is no happy ending. It's not possible for there to be a happy ending. Unfortunately, the overall story of Native Americans, it's, it's a sad story when you're going to talk from the 19th century point of view. But he's able to make this film where you see this tribe of people that are they're really fun. They're, yeah, there's some angry people. There's some happy people and sweet people, intelligent people. But they're not stereotypes. And there's nothing that's insulting. I actually thought there was going to be a little bit more, uh, you know, a little stereotypical cowboys and Indians kind of thing. And there wasn't. Another thing I was shocked at was, I remember this film was long. And when I saw it's three hours and one minute, I was like, oh, my God. But it was not so much a chore. I mean, yes, it was three hours. It's long. But it's a decent three hours. I guess I could cut it down, but I can't cut this down to two hours. There's not too much superfluous stuff. And... I don't have a problem with the voiceover. I know. Yeah, but um, overall, I think the film is beautiful. We didn't mention the score. The score is fantastic. Was this film better than Goodfellas? I'm not going to go there. But what (laughs) my job is to say whether or not this film stands the test of time, and I think that's a resounding yes. I I think while there can be flaws to this film in almost every film, you know, it it tells a part of American history that unfortunately we don't talk about much. And while I'm sure there's a lot of problems that you said the Pawnee aren't accurately depicted. I think people should see this film. And uh, yeah, it stands the test of time. I think it's a pretty easy decision for me. What do you think, Al? Um, When I saw the runtime on this movie, I was like, oh no, James is going to hate that it's three hours. And I do agree that it is beautiful and it's a beautiful movie. And I 100% understand why it was nominated for Best Picture. I understand why it won Best Picture. I understand why it won Best Direction. I get why the critics love this movie when it came out. 100%. I understand it. And it is very well made. That said, in the three hours of this movie, not a ton happens. It's pretty slow. And I think that it's okay that we have these like long, beautiful shots of the sweeping vistas and the buffalo scene is long, but it's so amazing. Who cares how long it is? It's just great to watch. There's a lot of like the learning the language stuff that kind of just takes a while. And of course it would. It makes sense that it would take a while for them to, to learn each other's language. I think the unrealistic thing about that is how Stands with a Fist seems to know pretty perfect English, despite the fact that she's been with the Native Americans for most of her life since she was, I don't know, what, five or so? We see her in that flashback. Like, would she remember that many words? I don't know. But I think my biggest problem with this movie is that this is a movie that ostensibly is about the white men being bad and treating the Native Americans poorly. 
and it's told from the point of view of a white man. It's a white savior movie. I said something similar when we talked about Glory. You know, that was a movie about this incredibly brave black troop in the Civil War, and it's told from the point of view of the white guy. If you want to tell a movie about what it was like to be a Native American when the white men are invading the frontier, cool. But why do you make it from the white man's point of view? And again, the voiceover doesn't really help because we're just seeing everything from his eyes and his point of view. But then you could say, well, maybe it's like a Romeo and Juliet story. It's a love story. But the love story is a little underdeveloped. And also, it's the two white characters that fall in love with each other. It's not a Romeo and Juliet thing. Like, if they were going to have Dunbar fall in love with a Native American woman, that could have been more interesting. But they don't do that. They just pair up the two white characters. And it's a shame. I feel like this movie does leave a lot on the table in terms of the stories they could be telling. Tell the story from Wind in His Hair's point of view. That sounds interesting. It's just odd getting it all from the white guy's point of view. It's odd how the white guy gets the buffalo, even though he's never hunted buffalo before, and how he he single-handedly defeats the Pawnee, and also that the Pawnee are really the bad guys in, I don't know, 75% of the movie, and then just at the very end, it's like, oh yeah, right, the white soldiers, they're bad. They're the real villains of this story. Maybe they are the villains the whole time and we don't see it, but no, we don't see it. We have no idea that they're the villains. And I think if the movie really wanted to be bigger, bolder, braver, they should have come right out with that in the beginning and made that the whole story. But it's a movie for American audiences predominantly, so maybe it's better to just kind of tuck that in in the last 20 minutes. I get why they made the decisions that they made. But I think if you were going to make this movie today, you would do it in a very, very, very different way. You would take a totally different approach. And for that reason, I'm going to say that the movie does not stand the test of time. Even though it's a Best Picture winner, I'm going to say no. It seems to me, at least, you're saying not that this film doesn't stand up. It almost seems like you're saying they should have made this film that I wanted them to make. And since they didn't, then it doesn't stand up. Well... I think it's a little bit of both because if someone went to some Hollywood executive today and said, I want to tell a story about Native Americans in the late 19th century and how they're executed by the white man and how the white men, you know, destroyed their culture. And I'm going to tell it from the white man's point of view. I think that the Hollywood executive would say, what? Are you kidding me? You can't do that. No, we can't tell that story that way. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm not a Hollywood executive. I don't greenlight movies for a living. I don't know. I do not think this story would be told this way today. I see what you mean. There would definitely be someone on Twitter writing this. Uh, you know, there would be a Medium.com article about what you're saying. I think this film would be just as successful today. I don't think so. I think there would be enough controversy around it. Also, like, yeah, Green Book won Best Picture a few years ago, but there was like such a swift backlash against that. I feel like maybe this movie could have been made recently, maybe pre-Green Book. When was that? 2017? I'm not sure. But like after that, I don't think so. Not in 2021. Again, I think that the things you're talking about 
was Twitter, not the real world. I think a lot of people that saw Green Book liked it. I think if you read Twitter, you would have a very different opinion. That's Twitter world. I, I don't think that's real. I completely agree that this criticism would be there. I don't think it would be major. I think this film is generally well-made and I think generally respectful. Definitely you would see uh, an article from a descendant of the Pawnee who are like, this is total bullshit what you said about my great-great-great-grandparents. That's completely bullshit. And that would be valid criticism, but I think this film is beautiful and would still maybe not win Best Picture, but be nominated. Maybe. We disagree. That's okay. But that's going to do it for us this week. Next week, we are going to finish up our fan request month of November with a movie requested by our friend Mailer, who wanted us to watch The Stoned Age. I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that you've never seen this movie before, James. Am I right? No, I've never even heard of it. Okay, well, you've heard of it now, and you're going to watch it for next week, and we're going to talk about The Stoned Age, which is pretty far away in terms of everything from Dances with Wolves. Uh, So we'll have a very different conversation next week. But in the meantime, we want to hear your thoughts. Talk to us. We are at Test of Time Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Uh, You can also email us at testoftimepodcast at gmail.com. Check out our website, testoftimepod.com. Get yourself some merch. Hey, Hanukkah Christmas season is coming up fast. You need a last-minute gift? Get your friends, your loved ones, your family members some Test of Time merch. You can find the link at testoftimepod.com. One question, does merch stand for Mercedes? No, it stands for merchandise. (sighs) All right, get some merchandise, everyone. And we'll see you next week, everybody. Goodbye. Bye.